In this episode, I'm joined by Paul Kingsnorth, who is an English writer and co-founder of the Dark Mountain Project. In this episode, we discuss his conversion to Orthodox Christianity, Western cultural collapse, modernity, hell, and spiritual belief in contemporary society. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support Hermitics and keep the podcast going indefinitely, please find links in the description below or become one of our YouTube subscribers. Enjoy. Paul Kingsnorth, thanks very much for joining us on Hermitics podcast. Thanks for the invitation. We are going to be discussing probably a lot of things. Um, you know, as you know, I've had people such as John Michael Greer, Dmitry Orlov, uh, James Howard Kunstler, the people in this um, sort of shouldn't be fringe, but is fringe area of people taking what's going on in the world seriously. Uh, I would include you in that in a, a sort of different way. I don't mean this... Uh, uh, in a strange way, but you're more uh, quintessential, quintessentially sort of British and perhaps more reserved in your take and a bit more nuanced than uh, some of the other writers on the topics. Um, I began reading your work with Confessions of a Environmentalist many years ago. Uh, and we've also, there's now sort of a spiritual element to your work because you've recently converted to Romanian Orthodox Christianity. So we have a lot of things to, to discuss. Um, but I guess I would ask, you know, you're one of the more well-known guests who's come on. Uh, for those that don't know you, how would you describe yourself? What is it you do? Well, these days I just call myself a writer, um, which is really what I've always done. Um, I, I used to call myself a writer and activist when I was an activist, and I founded the Dark Mountain Project, which was a, uh, a group of writers and artists and others. But really, fundamentally, what I've done for 25 years is write in every genre you can think of, because that's the way I, it's the way I make sense of the world, and it's the way I get all of this stuff out of my head which is <laughs> a form of terrible form of therapy mm. okay okay um yeah i mean before we jump in with the big topics uh i do have to ask you the hermetics question uh, you can place three thinkers living or dead into a room and listen in on the conversation who do you pick yeah i thought about this quite a lot actually there's too many um i think i'm going to choose i'm going to choose gk chesterton yeah. i'm going to choose uh going to choose Gandhi and I'm going to choose Julian of Norwich. Jesus. Julian of Norwich, the great English mystic, female English mystic, mm. despite being called Julian. She was a, she was a woman. Okay. Uh, so that would, yeah, that would keep me going for hours listening to that. Was, was Chesterton's orthodoxy part of, for, for I think for many uh, modern Westerners, Chesterton's orthodoxy and his, his uh, apologetics are, they, uh, they make the leap, right. For a lot of people, was he a big part to play? Um, well, not exactly. I mean, it's funnily enough, I used to read Chesterton a lot when I was young, in my early 20s, which shows you what a, what a freak I was. Um, I loved Chesterton. They're not for the religious writing particularly, but for the, for the economics, the distributism, the, the thing that's, I suppose, politically and culturally that's run through all of my writing is this, the smallest beautiful vein, which I picked up from the, obviously, the traditional green thinkers that were always, all, all, all green thinking was really based on. Mm. Uh, a, a critique of scale and it was Chesterton who really took that up and had a very particularly kind of English medievalist take on it as well which I like you know um, so yeah actually his religious writing initially wasn't very interesting to me but more recently uh, I've, I've, I've made the connection as, as you say a lot of people do hmm. okay so what why Gandhi why Gandhi? Because again, Gandhi is is coming really from the same place uh, politically and culturally Gandhi sees that the problem is greed, and Gandhi sees that the solution is is voluntary renunciation. But Gandhi, 
almost takes what Chesterton has proposed and applies it, you know, in his own country or attempts to apply it anyway, takes this fusion of the critique of scale and the critique of capitalism and empire with with his, his religious background, with his Hindu faith and with his own culture and tries to make it work in the kind of in the kind of ferment of this time in which India is throwing off the British Empire and, and starting to say what kind of country are we going to be? Mm. Gandhi has a radical answer, which obviously doesn't get implemented and probably never was going to, because it was too far too um well, it was too dangerous and it was too unappealing to, to a lot of people. But fundamentally he was right and he'll be proven to be right. And um so yeah, he's a, he's almost a practical practical, modern, fairly modern version of what Chesterton was trying to talk about. And what all of the thinkers that inspire me from Schumacher to Leopold Court, all of these others, they all they all come back to a kind of rooted, rooted radicalism, I like to call it. Mm-hmm. So I suppose it's been the, the thing I've always circled around. Do you, do you feel uh, us moderns get Gandhi wrong? Do you think we've sort of uh, characterised him as a, uh, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, something that he actually isn't? Well, I don't know. What do you what do you mean? What sort of characterization? Sort of, the, I think the same characterization, perhaps as uh, Mother Teresa. That these <clears throat> their their names are almost used as terms, as markers of everything that is good, which itself adheres to a Western form of goodness, which doesn't mm. allow in anything like harsh or very practical or uh, should we say didactic it doesn't allow in anything which mm. might be so you, our, our notion of good is like oh, these people are amazing they were good but equally there's never a discomfort right it's not like if we if we're good we're, we still get to eat our cake as well right yeah it's interesting <laughs> isn't it because gandhi gandhi often is set up as either this saint mm-hmm. or this hypocrite because the, you know the fashionable thing if you don't like what gandhi represents is to go and find some bad stuff he did and say oh look he was a hypocrite all along yeah. which I'm sure he would have been the first to admit. But Gandhi's a really interesting combination of a saint, I suppose, in that's in, in the broad sense of the word, and a politician. You know, he's a very mm-hmm. interesting man. I mean, he was a lawyer trained in, in Britain. So in many ways, he's quite westernised. Mm-hmm. Could have had a comfortable Western life in, in India or indeed in other parts of the empire. Chose not to. Chose to, to deliberately regress uh, politically and culturally in, in, in terms of what he thought India should be. His, his ideal India is all focused around the village, the village economy, village culture, um, but he's, you know, he's a very, very cunning and clever politician. I mean, he managed to pretty much strong arm the British into giving India independence earlier than they planned, not on his own, but certainly as part of a wider movement. And he was very clever in his tactics. He knew he knew what he was doing. Um, very impressive character, very unusual. And yeah, absolutely. It's easier to look at people like that and see them as just sort of uncomplicated holy martyrs or indeed just lying hypocrites rather than looking at the fact that it's very, very rare to see anybody who tries to take a practical vision like that one and make it work in the modern world. Mm. A Gandhi would have fitted in completely un, unobjectionably any time in the Middle Ages in Europe mm. and any time in India before the modern period too. I mean, it's, you know, wandering holy men are everywhere even now. So, so yeah, absolutely. There's a certain perspective that sees him differently, but I, I always found him fascinating. It's um, very curiously modern, actually, Gandhi, in a, in a very particular ancient way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and then julian of norwich so there seems to be a, a a vein of extreme practicalness running through these three of sincere practicality well julian of norwich is is yeah julian of norwich is a mystic so mm-hmm. she was um she was in this this strange to me very captivating medieval tradition of being an anchoress um in her case and an anchoress is somebody who 
is literally often walled up in, mm-hmm. in a church. I mean, it's very, I used to live in Oxford and there was a church in Ifley, old medieval church in Ifley, wonderful old church. It's a Norman church and it, it had an anchoress or an anchorite in it at one point. You can still see the little cell they would live in. And they would be walled up in the church, uh, in the wall of the church, and they would literally live in the wall of the church. There'd be a gap on one side so they could take communion. There'd be a gap on another side so pilgrims could come or people could come and speak to them. And that's where they would live. And that's that's um, St. Anthony, the great St. Anthony of the desert, the Christian uh, desert father who founded the kind, almost founded the monastic movement, has this famous phrase. He says, stay in your cell. Your cell will teach you everything. And, you know, and the older I get, the more I see that that's the truth. You can go all over the world and you can read every thinker in the, in the universe, but you have to stay in your cell. And Julian of Norwich literally stays in her cell and has these incredible ecstatic visions. Mm-hmm. Um, again, strangely modern ecstatic visions of, of God, very Christian, but also very, um, very personal. And it's, uh, it's just, um, I'm not sure that she, I don't know how much of a conversation she could have, actually, because most of her experiences are just, just that. They're experiences that can't really be conveyed, but. But I mean, in all of these, all of these thinkers I've chosen, um, except for with the possible exception of Chesterton, I suppose they're not primarily thinkers. They're primarily, they are primarily religious figures. I mean, even even Chesterton, he's an intellectual, but he's a very, uh, you know, almost aggressively Catholic one towards the end of his life. It's all, it's absolutely central to what to what they are doing, and it's it's interesting. You said at the introduction that I had sort of become a spiritual writer and had become a Christian recently which is true in one sense, but in another sense, I've always actually been a, a spiritual writer in the broadest sense of the word. It's not as if it's just something I've considered. I found a home that I didn't expect to find, but actually I've always been really clear from the beginning of my writing career and actually from the beginning of my life in some vague way that I could never put a finger on that the environmental struggle that I was involved in for a long time. And indeed all of this talk about collapse and civilization crumbling and all the rest of it, it's fundamentally a question of values and it's fundamentally a question of culture and culture is always fundamentally a spiritual question what is a culture what's it called around it's always mm. always a religious question and we hate that you know in in mm. the modern world we are deeply deeply uncomfortable religion is supposed to be something that we uh, got rid of during the enlightenment it was supposed to fade away um it was you know it was supposed to disappear because it was irrational but it's it's not fading away it's expanding there are more religious people in the world than there have ever been and meanwhile, enlightenment materialism doesn't seem to be really delivering the goods very well, I think we could say. So there's there's always been a sense that even when I was a young activist trying to stop roads being built over hills or anything like that, there was a sense that this was a much bigger question than just a question of economics or politics. It was something very sacrilegious being done, actually, to the to the natural world and to us. Something really quite dark and nasty. And I still feel that. Well, I mean, you know, plenty of writers have noticed, you know, man man abhors a vacuum and the Enlightenment was just the next religion to come along. It has its own teleology. It has its own things that we worship. It has all that. It has its own gods. The only problem is that they have no fundamental truth <laughs> to mm. them. So you just, you can basically just do what you want and declare it that thing. But I mean, okay, one one question, I guess, to maybe really open up that, before we go into your own spiritual journey, just to stay with these thinkers, to sort of open up that absolute chasm between modernity and uh, a sincere religious belief. Uh, you know, we, we talk of, uh, you spoke of sort of Julian of Norwich here as this living living in the wall, right? Literally living in the wall of the church. Mm. 
but there's a there's a sort of a tone perhaps of absurdity in relation to the modern world. Why do you think it is that you know? And of course, I'm uh, I'm judging here, but the majority of modern people would read that, hear that, and just consider that absolutely an absurd way to live. It's because in any pre-modern society, and certainly this is true of medieval Europe, and it would be true of would be true of anywhere you can look at an African culture or look at India. Obviously, we were talking about that in the context of Gandhi. Everything is called around God. I mean, look at the Middle East, look at the Muslim world uh, as well. Obviously, I mean, to some degree, that's still true there today. And it's still true in large parts of the rest of the world today as well. Europe, particularly, is very much an outlier um, at the moment, just in terms of our uh, commitment to rational, allegedly rational liberalism. But if you have a culture which begins from the standpoint that the that life is a mystery, that life is created by something, by a being, that that being is watching you, that it cares for you, and that your work is to reunite with it, and that that's what you know that's what's going to happen when you die in some way. Then what you, however, what, what, whatever iteration that takes, because obviously there are a lot of religions around, mm-hmm. it sees life the, the the life that we're in now on this earth as a kind of a temporary journey or as one part of something very much bigger. And it sees the material world as obviously real, objectively real in one sense, but also not the only reality. Mm-hmm. Um, it sees any number of planes of different beings. This is true of, you know, of modern paganism. It's true of indigenous ways of seeing. It's true of Christianity. There are any number of planes of different strange beings and angels and archangels and demons and earth spirits and the creator and in all sorts of different ways, this reality that we're living in that we can sense with our sense, sensory perception or even measure with our science <laughs> is just one part of something very much bigger. And that's that's pretty much the default human worldview, I would say, up until the modern time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you live in that world, what someone like Julian of Norwich is doing is dedicating her life to communing with that creator. You know, it's worth saying that even in the Middle Ages, being an anchorite and walling yourself up in a church is pretty extreme behaviour. It's, <laughs> it's not something that most people are but doing. It, but it but would be understood. Entirely understandable. And, you know, people would go to that holy person and they would be talking, there would be cues outside the cells of these people for, for advice and for consultation and for confession, whatever else it is, because that because basically the society is called around God. Society is called around the divine however that's seen or measured or whatever claims there are. And the whole story of modernity, really, the more I look at this, the more I've, it's almost been a kind of terrible realisation in the last few years. I think before I became a Christian, I realised this. Really, we're living in a story which is based on the rejection of God. The whole of the modern world is really a rejection of the notion that there is anything beyond the material. Mm-hmm. And it's the, it's the scientific method which very rapidly became, as you say, a kind of religion in itself. It very rapidly went beyond a method for measuring things and became this sort of God. The way we say trust the science now is very, is very much like, you know, have faith, have faith in the father, trust the science, which, which turns out to be whatever the establishment of the day is telling you the science is. Mm -hmm. Um, Trust the science is almost the opposite of of what the scientific method actually does. Yep. Um, but yeah, we have, we have built a culture that is based around the notion that there is nothing other than what we can measure and see. And there's certainly no room for divine claims. And that is as ridiculous as claims about ghosts or the Loch Ness Monster, which in my view might be real as well. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> certainly the ghosts. Don't know about the Loch Ness Monster. But um, so it's it's fundamentally just such a cultural shift. 
Mm. It's such a cultural shift. And people who are religious today, especially in the Western world, this isn't necessarily as true elsewhere, I think are just living a kind of strange uh, double life, actually, because you have to, in public, live as if a religion was just something you did on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in in your actual life, if you if you are say a Christian and you believe that you believe in the incarnation and the resurrection, or if you are say a Muslim and you believe that you know Muhammad is receiving this text from God, then that's the most important thing that's ever happened in the universe, right? Mm-hmm. There is nothing else that's more important than what is going on in the government of the day does not override that, mm-hmm. and politics doesn't matter, and nothing else matters actually, other than the path that you've been given to try and reconnect with God again. And as I say, I think past societies in all of their different ways uh, were were called around that, and ours is called around rejecting it. And I think that's a huge psychic shift that we haven't come to terms with. So, would you uh, do you think we could probably? It's quite cheap, but clear, most clearly define our God as greed or consumption. I think our God is ourself. I think fundamentally we have. When you, if if you if you look at the, I. I love the Christian story of the fall. I come back to this again and again. It's so interesting, so much to explore in it. If you look at the fall, if you look at the story of Eden and the eating of the apple and the the tempting snake, uh, and you look at that in the broadest sense of the word and you say, what's happening here? Um, Then what is happening here is that we're living in this primeval state of oneness with with the creator who's so close to us that we can see him walking around. Um, And with all living creatures in a garden. And we... I've got a choice. We can keep living like that and we can grow in wisdom or we can, we can choose knowledge instead. We can choose power mm. and knowledge of the self and we choose that. And we're tempted by the devil to choose that, the devil being the kind of the dark force which speaks against oneness and, and says, come on, you can do better than this. And the devil says, God is trying to keep you from your true self. You know, you're, you're worth it. Eat the apple. So we eat the apple and um, immediately we notice that we're naked. And that's really very interesting to me. It's a very interesting image. What does that mean? Well, that means we've become self-aware. You know, we weren't self-aware before. We weren't aware of our individual selves as distinct from everything else. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you eat that apple of knowledge, which is also the apple of power, you're aware of yourself and you start covering yourself up. That's the first fashion statement where you put the fig leaves over yourself, right? So we've already started. So what we've done is we've chosen self-awareness and self-will over some form of unity with everything else and with, with the will of God, which is presumably what C.S. Lewis called it, the Tao, you know, the Tao and the will of God being the same thing. So we've chosen basically to rebel and to say, no, we're going to do it ourselves. We can do it better than this. And the consequence of that is, one of the first consequences is, is we die. But the, the, one of the other consequences, interestingly, is we have to break the soil. We have to toil in the ground. Agriculture is the consequence, right? We've literally walked out of the primeval hunter-gatherer garden and we've walked into agriculture, which leads us to civilization, which leads us to everything that we're in now. So the God we have in the modern world is ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's self-fulfillment. It's whatever we desire we should have. Um, and that's the God we've been following for several hundred years. It's what our economy is based around. It's what our culture is based around. And it's always, always, always based around the claim that if we just have more than we've got now, whether it's more money or more wealth or more stuff or more therapy or more attention or more fame, whatever it is, then we'll be happy. I mean, it demonstrably doesn't work. No. And we know at some level that it doesn't work as well. But we haven't got anything else because the alternative is to turn back uh, and say, okay, how do we get back on that kind of path to divinity again, which we will do at some point. 
but um, it's going to take a, a while, I think, before we before the modern myth dies out. I mean, that's interesting because in that story of the fall, even those you know we speak, speak of that as if it's an era. Uh, those who uh, ate of the fruit would at least have had knowledge of God, right? So mm. this turns into this sort of Gnostic thing of trying to be- become God in yourself as an individual. But at least you're aware of the divine. Whereas it seems the modern man, not only has he eaten the fruit, but he somehow, somehow denies the entire structure of why that's real. So you're just, you're basically in this paradox of trying to become a God without any divine structure of, mm. you know, of any direction of what that could even be. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's very interesting. And the other story in the Bible that's so interesting is that the Old Testament anyway is, is the Tower of Babel, because that's pretty much, again, where we are. We're building a huge tower to, to get to the heavens. But as you say, we obviously don't believe we'll find a God <laughs> when we get there. So we're just building it because we can. We're, I mean, it's literally almost a picture of Elon Musk's spaceship, isn't it? You know, we're, <laughs> because we've been building towers to get to the heavens forever and ever. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and there's also, I think there's something really psychologically uncomfortable for us in trying to live in a world in which there isn't anything higher than us. Because the world picture that we have now is that we are the center of everything. Um, not because God created us to be the center of everything <laughs> or anything like that, but because we created ourselves, because we, had, we just happened to have randomly evolved to be clever, cleverer and better than other things. So you can either use that as an excuse for dominance or an, or an abuse, or you can use it as an argument for sort of wise stewardship. But basically, it still puts humans at the center of everything. Um, and as you say, it doesn't give us anything to work towards other than our own glorification, mm-hmm. whereas any true religious story is telling you about how you can achieve reunification with with a divine that you've separated yourself from. Whereas we're not interested in that. We, we've got to, you know, the only way we're going to live forever is uh, is if the, the Silicon Valley guys can work out how to freeze our heads in a facility <laughs> or upload our minds to their silicon yeah. chips. But it's, it's very interesting, this stuff, because the, the new religion, the religion of the machine, is precisely this vi- vision of, of kind of Ray Kurzweil's singularity, you know? Yeah, it's the, yeah. the technological, the, the technium is going to save us. And what we've done is we've created a really weird, demonic version of the Christian story in which we still get to go to heaven. We still get to live forever. Obviously, the only God is us, and we design it all ourselves. And it's, we've still got a soul but somehow we can upload this soul into a silicon chip. And it's just the most bizarre, weird version of a religion. And it it is fundamentally a religious story that those guys are telling. Absolutely. It's it's got all the markers of it, but it's got no God in it. It's got nothing above us. It's it's a very weird thing. They've removed one key element, which Mm. is the the body. They've removed the Mm. body, right? In in all their dreams, they always go, we'll upload the soul. Mm. Well, what happens to consciousness when... Like, what's consciousness in a silicon mm. chip when it doesn't have a body, when it's not embodied yeah. to the world? Mm. They, they haven't, in my opinion, they haven't answered that. So, no, well, they can't answer it because <laughs> they don't even know what they're uploading. I mean, it's, it's this kind of this funda- it's, it's the fundamental assumption again that, for example, these robots that they're creating now um, can think, but they can't think. A computer can't think. A computer can be programmed with ones and zeros to do certain things that mimic humans, but they're not thinking. So, once they start to ask themselves, what exactly is it that we're uploading? Mm. They can't find anything because it isn't it isn't a material element. So it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. But but it absolutely fundamentally is a new faith with this strange West Coast of America priesthood, you know, that we're all supposed to look up to. But it, but it's also sort of the the emperor's new clothes, right? Mm. With 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 science in general, 
Right, some science is, you know, I can't, it's horrible because the word science now has just been completely ruined. And, you know, I can't deny, like, when I have a searing headache, I take some paracetamol. That is science to no, a degree. Who doesn't? Right? <laughs> yeah, right, it's helpful. It has its uses. Yes. It has its uses. But when we get into these realms, and I think someone must have at some point hopefully defined the difference between them, it does turn into the emperor's new clothes. I mean, you have people like Christopher Christopher Hitchens and um, Richard Dawkins, and they say things like, "Oh, God just made the universe in seven days, right?" And they say that as if it's ridiculous. But then, mm. on the, but then on the other hand, they they say things like, "Well, there was just a big bang," and we're mm. expected to take that as if it's absolute gospel, quote mm. unquote, and completely true. The same thing with consciousness. We go, "Well, we have a soul which is given to us by God, right?" And they go, "Oh, that's absolutely ridiculous." But then on the other hand, they'll say, "Oh, we're this combination of chemicals, neurons, blah blah blah." You know, mm. these things that w- that the average person has absolutely no way to mm. apprehend in any sense. We take that all on faith. And then we're, we're, we're expected to believe that one is ridiculous and the other completely isn't because it's under the veil of uh, mm. science. Yeah. It's, it's every, every culture has a theology, and that's the theology of this one. And, of course, there are plenty of uh, religious scientists who would take issues with the likes of Dawkins as well. But it's always been interesting to me because, you know, the Big Bang just looks like a manifestation of the of the of let there be light you know well there there it is <laughs> where did that come from i don't know but uh, you you're absolutely right what they do is they they often dis- what, what that way of seeing does is it describes material reality uh in a way that's presumably real because it can be measured that's what the scientific method is for but as you say it doesn't give you a bigger picture than that so yeah sure you can stick your head into one of those brain scanning helmets and you can see which part of your brain lights up when you're in love but that doesn't doesn't mean anything. That just means that bit of brain is doing something. But what's the love? What, what's the consciousness? No one can explain what consciousness is. No, as you say, no one can explain where life has come from. No one can explain what 96% of the universe is made of. That really interests me. Dark matter and dark energy, these two phrases that scientists have given to what the, the material that makes up 96% of the universe that they can't detect. So they've just come up with these phrases. Dark energy sounds really good. But all it means is we don't know what the hell that is. Mm. So we're only able to detect 4% of material reality, even if we're only operating purely on a materialistic plane. So what does that even mean? What does that mean? (laughs) What does any of it mean? So the limits of it are exposed all the time. I mean, you know, science can show us incredible things. I I love astronomy. I'm I'm amazed every time I look at a picture of the universe or just look at what can be seen. But the notion that that is any more than a revelation of, you know, something that's certainly real, but the notion that that's, somehow an explanation for anything it doesn't it doesn't make sense on any level that i can understand perhaps that's the problem that they make synonymous the content as if it's a conclusion itself yeah i think so i think well there's the the faith again the faith element of that the theology behind it is that now that we we have got so good at measuring material reality and we have i mean that's the thing about modernity it's very the the one thing that modernity excels at is is materialism you know we're Mm. really really good at using science and we're great at producing stuff which is why it's at one level very attractive like you say we've got medicines we didn't have before we can avoid dying of illnesses we might have died of before we've got stuff we didn't have before so that's attractive but we confuse that with an ability to to know anything more significant and and the, the theology is that if we just keep exploring eventually it will make sense it might do but i think it's very unlikely that if we just keep exploring material stuff we'll get to some big explanation of meaning because we're looking in the wrong places mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then you know modernity as well never you know you a uh, quote that I'm always fond of, which I've probably repeated a thousand times by Paul Virilio: "You invent the car, you invent the car crash. You know, you you, you create create all these material drugs, which you know um, 
don't prolong life. They deny deny death. You just end up mm. with a ton of people who are basically unable to even talk, literally talk about death, let alone mm. admit it. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you get the diseases of modernity as well. Of course, that didn't really exist before. Epidemics of diabetes and heart disease and obesity and all the other things that we're having fun with now. But, but yeah, actually, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? The the attitude to death, especially in the West, um, especially in the non-religious West, is just bizarre. We just don't want to look at it. It's always struck me that you know the English way of dealing with death is so hideous. It's so hideous. I mean, I live in Ireland now. And even even the Irish, I mean, Ireland has obviously been modernized radically over the last 30 years, but they still have a much saner, healthier attitude to death. I mean, if somebody dies around where I am, I'm out in the countryside, there's there's the laying out of the body in a house, there's a wake, people come from all around, there's a there's you know, there's a, a walk to the church, there's a burial, there's the kind of whole ritual that all again, all cultures develop around death, which, you know, in England, certainly where I come from anyway, it was, you know. Take them down the Undertaker, get them in the crematorium as quickly as possible. Have a little, have a little speech by a vicar they never met because they weren't Christian, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. And get them, get them cremated. And it's just the most kind of. Even when I was a child, I just thought this is the most weird, inhuman thing that's going on here. This is, it's like a. We don't want to look at this, so let's get it done as clinically as possible. Some some people sort of uh, I've heard, you know, where if they're really not religious and you sort of have one of these modern families where there's no real familial ties people they get they, they die in the hospital they get sent and cremated and you just get sort of get shipped probably from amazon you know next day <laughs> next day delivery of some ashes and you think oh. ashes drone delivery lovely <laughs> get it done efficiently yes why not yeah. maybe they could scatter them for you as well the delivery there. driver sort of lobs them at your door as well yeah leave leave them out in the rain yeah <laughs> that is well to be honest i think we've probably spoke talk talk that up now it wouldn't even surprise me if Bezos did start doing that. There you go. That's only a matter of time. Well, yeah. ultimately, we won't have any ashes because we'll all be immortal. So that's that problem, true. That but problem I've, will I've, be solved. Yeah, I've got Prime as well, though, so hopefully I can, you know, skip. Cool. You might get a, you might get a fast track to use the uploading track. of your mind then. The fast Amazon Prime uploading facility. I can't wait to be a completely disembodied thing. Yeah, what could be a better description of hell? <laughs> actually, I mean, literally, these people might try to create heaven and accident accidentally create hell i mean your mind's stuck in a silicon chip forever oh it's sort of like the Neuralink. i mean i don't want to go down this that that the musk thing where the Neuralink, and you can have this thing this chip in your head which just gives mm. you all the data right that's sort of like an internal tower of babel but i think mm. there's a great science fiction story there if that somehow glitched out and just kept repeating a song or something i mean that is hell mm. yeah you're guaranteed or well, someone hacks it which obviously is the, the first thing that will happen hacks it yeah, your mind literally hacked the ultimate mind hack. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. There, there are some, there are some good stories there. They've probably been written already. Probably Philip K. Dick. But I mean, back onto the religious, um, the religious thing. So you sort of say that early on in your writing, you you have a spiritual, a sort of underlying spiritual connection to nature, which doesn't, you know, isn't fully, uh, should we say, like outlined or quantified, if you want to use the modern word. But eventually, this um, crystallizes into orthodox christianity was there any specific reasons for this or was it a matter of practicality or what was it in orthodoxy that you well saw? yeah it sort of crystallized over a long period um i mean i wrote a, a, an article on this um for first things magazine called the cross and the machine which if any, anyone happens to be interested in knowing more they can read because i'm obviously better at explaining these things on the page than than non-podcast which is why i'm not a radio host um, but basically i mean i've I, i'm ne i'm nearly 50 now i'm 48 nearly next month and um since at least since i was at least 40 i've had a very conscious kind of spiritual search going on i mean i think before that 
as I say, I always had a sense that there was something that I wasn't, I mean, I, broadly speaking, I started off with this great passion for the natural world, which, which arose when I was a child. I used to spend a lot of time walking in the hills with my dad, and I had this great kind of Wordsworthian connection to all of the, the landscapes, especially the landscapes of, of Northern England. Uh, and there was something there that I couldn't put my finger on that was very clearly kind of mystical or divine, not that I would have understood that or used those words. Um, and so even when I was a kid and a young man, there was the, what was driving me I knew wasn't just practical or political. And I became a political activist and an environmental activist and an anti-globalization campaign and all this stuff in the early 2000s. And again, the reason I was doing that wasn't just because I thought capitalism was bad and unfair, although it is, or because I thought that we should be more sustainable, uh, although we should. It was that, as I said, there was a sense that something was really wrong in the way we were living. Um, and, the, our relation, and it crystallized for me through our relationship with the rest of nature, the fact that we had a culture that could destroy rainforests and turn them into toilet paper or or plywood um, uh, and poison the oceans and all the stuff we're doing and just either make excuses for it or look for technological solutions to it. And there was some deep sort of sense of this is this is very sacrilegious, although, again, that wasn't a word I would have used. Mm. Um, it's just so obviously wrong, and I still feel that. There's something very spiritually, psychologically broken about a culture that can do that stuff all the time. I mean, not, not even to mention what we're doing to a lot of people as well, which is all kind of, it's all obviously tied up in the same box. Um, so that was going on for a long time. And and I, I sort of thought, okay, this is a spiritual matter. I'm going to have to do some searching. So I actually started, went on a Zen Buddhist retreat when I was 40. That was my 40th birthday present to myself. Did a week on a, on a Welsh mountain with no electricity, with a lot of meditation. And that was very, it was a very powerful experience, actually. And I practiced Zen for quite a few years. Uh, and I still find it useful as a, as a way of understanding the human mind and a way of seeing. But there was also something missing that was kind of, I suppose, rising in me, the sense of sense of God, really. You know, the unspoken word, the word we're not supposed to say, mm-hmm. uh, and the word that I used to be embarrassed about when I was a teenage atheist. Um, but yeah, there was something missing, and it was, it was God, I think. And, and I went looking for that then, because when you're a Western person, and you come from a non-religious background, which sort of modern Western people tend to, certainly in Britain, you sort of go looking for God everywhere but Christianity, right? Because we're 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 we're, we're inoculated against it, right? We've all got, we've all got. Certainly, I grew up in you know schools with you know, assemblies and preachings from vicars and all this stuff, and I had no interest in it at all. It was all rubbish, and I thought, what is this? Got nothing to do with me, and it's fun to intellectually pick it apart and show that it's all nonsense and all that stuff. Um, so you because precisely because it's our own heritage, we're completely inoculated against the Christian faith and what we think it is. Right, and what we think mm-hmm. it is, um, because and also partly because it was so tied up with power and and you know that notion of, of what was wrong with that. Um, so yeah, you go looking everywhere else. So I looked in Zen Buddhism, and then I started looking in sort of neo paganism, and I studied mythology, and I did um, I did sort of vision quests on mountains, and then I joined a Wiccan coven. That was good. I became a witch, got myself a cloak. That was great. Bit of magic um, for a couple of years, and and then literally. Um, things started happening to me which were weird and inexplicable i started having dreams with jesus in them and stuff and then i felt like i was being literally physically taken out of this witchy environment i was in because i shouldn't be in it and i kept getting emails from christians <laughs> random emails from christians who wanted to do writing courses or tell me something about something they'd read and i thought what the hell's going on here and it felt like i was being pursued there's this very famous i think 19th century poem called the hound of heaven which is about being pursued by Christ. He just comes and gets you. 
and he says, right, enough of this nonsense. Come, come, <laughs> come, come and let me sort you out. And so that felt like it was happening for a long time and I was denying it. I didn't want to be a Christian. I didn't like Christians or the church or what I thought it was. But eventually I had to give in. Um, and when I gave in, I, I thought, okay, well, if, if I'm going to be a Christian, I need a church. What kind of church do I want? Because there's a lot of them. Um, and I couldn't, I, I felt in the end, to cut a long story short, that what I found in the Orthodox Church, of all places, um, the Eastern Church, was a, a very old version of the Christian faith, probably the closest one to the old apostolic tradition, with an incredible mystical heart that you just don't see in Western Protestantism mm -hmm. at all. It's all gone. I mean, the Protestant Reformation, Chester, one of Chesterton's big points, the Reformation basically destroyed the West and destroyed England because it ripped the heart out once you destroy the monasteries. And, you know, literally through the Middle Ages, you have monks in the monasteries in the Chantry, which is a particular building in a monastery, and they're chanting for the culture that they live in. They're chanting for the people. They're praying for all of the people all the time. And the Reformation destroys them, right? So you could say that we're all kept alive by these chanting monks through the Middle Ages. And when you when you sell the monasteries and give all the money to Henry VIII so he can buy another wife with them, then you've destroyed the heart of the culture. So Protestantism, even though I'm English, ought to, I suppose ought to be my faith, but it doesn't have doesn't have the monks. It doesn't have the mystics. It doesn't have the the, the reaching out. It just has just has sermons to to to, to a fundamental degree, I think. Mm -hmm. And so, well, yeah, what I found in Orthodoxy is a, a faith that really has this incredible mystical heart to it, and it's very ancient and not unchanging. Things change, but they don't change very fast, and they don't fundamentally change. Um, and uh, I ended up in Orthodoxy because I discovered that the only Orthodox monastery in Ireland, which is about a year old, has opened up about 40 minutes from my house. And it's run by Romanian nuns. So I went along after a while and I thought, oh, goodness knows what this is going to be like. But they were extremely welcoming to this strange Englishman walking in. And I met a priest there and then eventually ended up being baptized in the River Shannon on a very cold day in January. Which I managed to survive. But yeah, if you told me two or three years ago that I would end up being an Orthodox Christian, <laughs> I would I would have probably, I don't know how I would have reacted, but but it's um it's not a, it's not a journey that you can really rationalize. So if you do have that kind of materialist mentality, you think I'm a nutter. But this is how it works. It turns out, you know, this is how religion works on a, on a, on another level that you're not that you're conscious of, but you can't necessarily pin down. But once you open yourself up to something, I think once you start going on a spiritual search, then then you you either you know you get a call and you choose whether to answer or to refuse it. That was something I think that James Hillman said in his, his work on mythology. There's a there's often a phase in a great myth or an old fairy tale called the refusal of the call. You know, you get a call and you can either answer or refuse it. Is Odysseus going to go out on his journey or is he going to stay at home? You know, are you going to, are you going to go and mm -hmm. search for the Holy Grail or are you going to stay at home? You get this. A lot of people get it in, in middle age, sort of uh, approaching middle age and you say, okay, it's, am I going to stick in this material realm or am I going to go and look at answer, try and answer the big questions? So, yeah, the, the strange people go off and try and explore it, I suppose. So that's where I've ended up. Well, maybe that's what midlife crises are, the actual call, but then it's just, I think it's exactly just ignored what they and they just accelerate material. Yeah, calls. yeah. Oh, I need to I go talk on, to my wife to a lot about this. <laughs> yeah. Sorry? Yeah, or, or, you know, buy a red sports car and have an affair with your secretary. Oh, that's the traditional way of dealing with it. But, you know, my, my thought, Traditional. The traditional. That's the only <laughs> that's tradition we have left. The only tradition we have left. <laughs> buy the sports car. I talk to my wife about this a lot because my wife is from an Indian family, so she's she's actually Sikh. She grew up with the Sikh religion and didn't really practice it much when she was younger, but she's come back to it in midlife too. And we were talking about this just the other night. Yeah, the midlife crisis is basically the point in your life in which you get confronted by your mortality. 
and then you get confronted by you know god basically and you say am i going to go and am i going to go and try and reconnect with the divine or am i going to just as you say go on the cruise by the sports car keep desperately trying to fend off your <laughs> encroaching death <laughs> so, so that's that's the refusal of the call and until jeff bezos is successful death can't be defeated so mm. we have to make our choice but i mean i i had basically exactly the same experience and i think a lot of younger western men are now having it which was i grew up i you know it's, it's strange to think but i grew up in a christian school when i was younger it was a mm. c c of e school um but much like yourself it was like come in 9, 9 a.m right we say the lord's prayer we have these festivals but they were they were like token aesthetic gestures of control mm. it's like all right i did the lord's prayer right and there was no connection to anything it's like all right yeah, yeah it's 9 a.m right so we say the lord's prayer and that was it and uh and eventually church of england came to represent what christianity was to me and how that was taught in religious studies class which was there's a big man in the sky mm. right? which is like the utterly awful like simpsons-esque mm. overview of what religion apparently is yes, yes and you you end up basically understanding christianity as something which absolutely is not christianity it mm. is a modern c of e like veneer of I don't even know. Some, some. No, I don't know. Dying. I, don't know. I, don't know. I can't even describe yeah, it. it. Something that's already dead. It's interesting. I mean, <laughs> I used to say the Lord's Prayer in assembly as well, so I still know the Lord's Prayer. I memorised it, but no one ever explained to me what the hell it was. I didn't even know till I went back into the church that actually it's the prayer that Jesus had taught his disciples. I didn't know what it meant really. You just sort of say it, and when you start to read it in each line, you go, "Okay, right, yeah, this is what's going on." But as you say, yeah, that's the traditional kind of um, state church teaching in england and it is already dead it was already dead when we were young mm. and it's very yeah very much big man in the sky um, his son turned up two thousand years ago and wandered around and told everyone some stuff about gave them some parables and then died and no one can really explain what the crucifixion was either but then he came back again but then he went off again and then if you now you have to do what you're told basically that's, yeah yeah, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> so, uh, and, so, and then it'll be fine then you'll go to heaven but we don't explain that bit either and yeah. it's, uh, I think it's, you know, this is what happens if you try and take a faith and you strip its mystical heart out and then you try and ally it with the state and you sell it to everybody and it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. So I guess it's the problem of postmodern, it's education in the postmodern world, not having the courage to treat something sincerely, right? So they always have to treat everything at a remove. So mm. it's like, we've got to deconstruct it. It's like, oh, you could believe this. You know, mm. this could be real but also we have to we have to attend to this like anthropologically mm. so as a as a young person you're sat there like well what i don't i don't know what the hell's going on right yeah yeah i mean i think it's it's tied into a bigger problem in western culture which i think you know this is might even be the root of the bigger problem in western culture which is the people running things don't really believe in their culture at all they've all lost faith in it right so mm. Mm. if you look at the sort of culture war and the cultural breakdown in the west it seems so much to me that we've got this rotten establishment that just doesn't, is either trying to take everything apart just because it's fashionable or it just doesn't have any faith in what it is. And, and that's true. Of, you know, I remember in the eighties, there was a famous Bishop of Durham who decided that Jesus wasn't, I, I don't know, I think he wasn't resurrected or something, or he wasn't born of a virgin or whatever. And mm -hmm. we basically had a Bishop in the church of England who said that, you know, the whole thing's not real, but let's do it anyway. <laughs> Since then, there've been quite a lot of them. And I yeah. should say, by the way, I know some good, you know, very good Anglican priests and things who are really, really, you know, doing it properly and trying to keep the church alive. So there's lots of great people in, mm. in the Anglican tradition, but the actual sort of the hierarchy seems to be full of people who don't even 
basically really believe it anymore. And you can, like you say, you can sense that. You can sense yeah. that. So you know what? You're not going to go and give your life to somebody who isn't even sure whether it's a metaphor or not. You know, you want me to follow Jesus, but you don't really, yeah, you don't really want to, for political reasons, tell me that your faith is better than anyone else's, or, or even whether it really happened. Or, you know, so, what 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 is it you want me to do again? Yeah, I mean, there was an article recently about Harvard's new chaplain is is mm. is, is is an atheist. Oh yes, I think I saw that. Yeah, yeah. and I think the article, the title is Harvard's new chaplain is an atheist, and that's okay. That was probably in the, what, the New York Times or something, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. It was exactly <laughs> the New York Times. Of course, yeah. it was good. Yeah, that's the only the only acceptable way to be a chaplain now. I imagine is probably to actually not believe anything. But you know, the interesting thing is that it's you know you, you don't get this nonsense amongst people who practice serious religion. So it's interesting to me that I've had to go to the Romanian church to find a group of people who really are seriously going to tell you about Christ with no mucking about. Mm. And I think the same would be true in England. I mean, it's it's interesting to me recently, I was reading the most traditional conservative and religious part of England is London, mm. right? Um, because it's full of ethnic minorities, it's full of immigrants, and they brought with them really serious versions of their faith, whether or not their faiths are real or you believe in them. You know, the Muslims aren't mucking about the African mm. Christians aren't mocking about. I mean, I would imagine African Christians in Britain or Christians of African origin are probably going to keep Christianity alive long after all the you know native English people have wandered off and gone to the pub or done whatever it is we've done. Um, it's very interesting to me. I mean, here in Ireland, so I live in rural Ireland. You know, Ireland used to be this great bastion of Catholicism. They can't get priests here now. No one wants to be a priest in Ireland. The two local priests in the two churches are now Nigerian. So they brought in. It's it's quite ironic, really. We're being uh, we're having missionaries sent to us from Africa because we're, we're now the new clueless pagans, and they're coming in. But you know, they've got a lot of energy. I've never met these guys, but I've heard about them, and they've got a lot of real sort of deep Christian energy that seems to have fled from the West because we're just fat and consumerist. I don't know what it is, but we've we sort of basically don't believe in anything anymore. We don't believe in anything, uh, as I say, except for. Pleasure. This sort of vague dream of somehow self-fulfillment through material stuff. But we also all know that doesn't work. So we're very lost, you know, we're very lost. So it's interesting to me that since I wrote that piece about my weird conversion, I've had a lot of emails from people who've had a similar experience, actually, especially from people who didn't particularly want to be Christians or think they ever would. And they've they've come from other backgrounds. And it's it's almost like there's this sort of very quiet turning back towards god going on because i think that's inevitably going to happen certainly seems that from where i'm sitting as well but as you say there is that as a as a as a as a brit a lot of sort of alternative spirituality ironically christianity is the last thing you come to but as i say mm-hmm. i think it's because in the sort of traditional rebellion against your parents probably you push back against it because it was there for them in their sort of you know um but uh it's you eventually realize that the christianity that you were like well i can't I can't be Christian. That's ridiculous. Really, mm. isn't Christianity at all? No. But um, it's interesting you say about you know uh, African Christians sort of keeping it alive, and I think that's probably mm. where a lot of uh, Islamophobia springs from in the UK. Is that mm. it's not really to do with them themselves. It's to do with the fact that modernity has absolutely nothing to offer them. Right, as you say, they take it seriously. Therefore, they immediately have something that's always going to be more important than the modern world, mm. which is yeah. absolutely abhorrent to the modern world. Mm. You know, they don't want that. That's the, that's a real it, thing that could undermine yeah. it. It's very interesting. I've always had a kind of grudging respect for radical Islam at the same time as being terrified by it. I mean, <laughs> you know, and with, with good reason, because obviously you have violence and terrorism and all sorts of insanity. Yeah. 
at the extremes. Obviously, most people aren't involved in that stuff, but it's there. Um, but there is, as you say, um, I mean, I, again, it's something else I wrote in that little piece about first things. My best friend at school was a Muslim uh, and he came from a Pakistani family. And, you know, I didn't really know much about Islam or care or ask him, but I just knew he'd been been on the pilgrimage to Mecca. And sometimes I go around his house and he'd be wearing his religious garb. And I just think, well, this is a bit weird. And I'd feel <laughs> alienated by it. But but yeah, absolutely. It, it just, you just thought you, you looked at this family and you thought, right, they really, this is very serious for them. Mm. And they weren't making a big show of it. They were just, this is what they do, right? They're very, very true. And this is true of uh, two of my wife's family as well. My, as I say, my Sikh family, my mother-in-law very, is very religious in a very quiet way. Um, she's often down the good where she prays a lot. She's it's very central to her life. And I think we do find that very threatening. I used to, when I was younger, you know, it was like, what is this weird stuff? Let's get rid of it. Why aren't these people becoming secular like us. And I think the more kind of decadent and messed up our consumer culture becomes, the more incentive people from more traditional backgrounds have to really try and do their thing properly, you know, because as you say, if you have a strong faith, uh, it just overrides anything in, in, in this, in this little plane, you know, you're not going to stop practicing your faith because the government says so, or because, you know, I don't know, you, you could get a better job if you didn't do it or whatever. It's the most, if you take it seriously, if you take any religion seriously, it's the most important thing in the world. Mm-hmm. And if you don't take it seriously, then there's no point in doing it. I mean, that's <laughs> fundamentally when it, where it comes down to you. It's not something you can sort of try and do on a Sunday morning. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> it has to, it reshapes you. Actually, it transforms you. If it's not transforming you, then it's not something's wrong with it so that's it's a radical thing i feel it transforming me slowly more slowly than i'd like it to but but it it does do that you know and any any practice does that so yeah who knows maybe we'll be saved by immigration (laughs) from from countries with real real religion i don't know but it's um it's 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 interesting it's interesting to see that yeah, I guess, but in, in a paradoxical sense, I mean, I can't remember who said it, but I've read before a quote from someone that said, hell is the best place to find Jesus, right? And maybe mm. the modern world will eventually be a helping hand because I've, I've noticed people younger and younger have quicker and quicker access to basically every kind of accelerated hedonism possible, right? By mm. the time you've 18, by the time you're 18, you've, you've lived the life basically of historically that of a king you know you've had Mm. you've you've traveled (laughs) you've traveled the globe you've had every Mm. kind of rich food etc etc and quicker and quicker people are you know getting to the terminus of hedonism and realizing Mm. that i'm still absolutely lost Mm. so perhaps perhaps in the modern world maybe we need to just accelerate it and People will... Well, it's going to accelerate itself anyway. So there's, there's no, there's no. I think that's very, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's um, there's a great uh, piece of advice. I think it was from Saint Saint Siloan of of uh, of Mount Athos. Um, his his disciple was Saint Sophroni, who founded a Orthodox monastery in Essex. Actually, um, the monastery of Saint John the Baptist, and Saint Sophroni was. Uh, on Athos and he was just having a terrible time and he, and he was just wasn't his faith wasn't working and he didn't think he, he was losing it and he prayed he went through this enormous period of prayer for hours and hours and he got this he says he got this message from God which was keep your mind in hell and despair not and it was very interesting actually it's like yeah of course you have to go through this what did you think it was about you have to go through this to come out the other side so absolutely I mean it's um it's also interesting what you said about rebelling against your parents because you know a few generations ago people were rebelling against their kind of 
traditional Christian parents. <laughs> well, now their parents are all liberal hedonists, you know. So <laughs> how are you going to rebel against them? And it's as you say, it's it's just so empty. I mean, the stuff that the, the horrible stuff that children have access to as well. I mean, the, the horrors of kind of internet porn for 10-year-olds and stuff. It's just the most I've got I've got children and luckily they don't have smartphones, but it's just the most horrific thing. And at some point, as you say, you're going people are going to get glutted with this stuff very quickly and they're going to say, What, you know, what is this? And and what's what is there that's bigger than this? And and that gives me an alternative to it. But it's, I mean, I do think now, and again, I would have been horrified to hear myself say this even five years ago, probably, but I think I think we can't live without God for very long, actually. I really think we can't live without God, without some connection to God, without some desire, without some pathetic stumbling attempt to live in a good way, some good relationship. I think we just go mad, actually, mm -hmm. which might explain what's going on in, in the West at the moment. And we're just literally going mad because we've decided that we can live, as you say, this life of kind of mad hedonism, which has the side effect of changing the climate and creating a mass extinction and destroying life on Earth, you know, just so we can have a good time. Um, and still creates billions of people living in slums at the same time. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, but yeah, these are the, these are, these are the, the, the consequences, you know, these are the consequences. I think it's Philip Sherrard, the um, orthodox thinker, wrote this great book called The Rape of Man and Nature. I call it a great book. It's a depressing book, but it's, it's, <laughs> from an orthodox perspective but he basically says in there at some point he says look our punishment is having to live in the world that we've created mm -hmm. right so our punishment for this rebellion against god or this attempt to create ourselves in to make gods of ourselves is we just have to live here now that's uh we made it so now we have to live in it so that's uh yeah it's just a nice little uh sort of grim footnote to it all but so these humanitarian groups and these activist groups who are usually uh, like openly secular right they really push the fact they're secular as well mm. you don't think it's uh, just to sort of tie the the two big themes of this discussion together you don't think that uh let's say quote unquote stopping climate change or coming to terms with peak oil or coming to terms with uh, our resource constraints and gen and genuinely sincerely dealing with them you don't think that's possible without god well i don't know i mean look there's nothing wrong with that uh, at all. It's all got to be done. Um, but it's just that when I ask the question, why have why are we in this position? Why have we managed to create a culture? I mean, really, just in a couple of hundred years that mm. has changed the climate of the whole world. That's an astonishing thing to do, if you think about that. We managed to live for like 300,000 years without destroying so much of life that we created a mass extinction. And in 250 years, we've managed to do that. So something's gone terribly wrong. And I don't think it's just that we've burned some coal and it turned out to have a, a side effect. It's that we have rejected something that is very much bigger than us and a vision of our lives, which is not fundamentally about us. I mean, this is the thing about religion. Again, it's not Christians are often accused of being very human centric, you know, uh, and especially by pagans. And it's not untrue in some ways. You know, there, there's a, there are certain strands of Christianity that say, well, you know, God made us the, God made us to rule the world so we can do what we like. Um, but actually, that's not the story. The story is that the story is that the center of creation is the creator. And if you orientate yourself towards that, then you try to live as Christ told you to live, which is with humility and loving your neighbor and going barefoot and rejecting riches. And those teachings, if you actually followed them, which most of us don't, including me, 
Um, but at least, at least we're sort of stumbling towards them. But if we followed them, we wouldn't be in this position. You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't be here. So I'm not I'm not making a case that you know we all have to become Christian, to stop climate change or something clumsy like that. It's just that if we if we think that the problem is purely technological or material, then you know then we just end up with the techno fix mentality where we come up with something clever to replace the bad thing, and then that clever thing turns out to have a side effect. So then we have to replace that. That's that's what's known as the progress trap. So yeah, that's that's where we are. So I think that the difficult work has to be turning back towards, yeah, turning back towards God, but also turning back towards the kind of the the simple and the small and 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 the ways that we that we actually need to live, which is where Gandhi comes in again. You know, that's what that's about. That's what he was trying to do. As an educated, westernized Indian man, he wanted to throw all of that stuff off that he'd been taught was progress. And most of us don't live like that. I don't. So I, I struggle with that all the time. I think, well, look at all the ways that Jesus is actually telling us to live. I'm not doing most of this. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for me? It means I'm just, does it mean I'm a hypocrite? Probably. So how am I going to, how am I going to deal with that? It's an interesting question. Right. Um, it's harder in modernity than at any other time in history to throw it off and say, right, I'm going off to be a, a wandering monk or something because, you know, you could probably still get away with that in India, but you certainly can't here. Yeah, I don't think, uh, you know, by the state's definition, a quote-unquote homeless person, if they started saying I'm a wandering monk, they'd be they'd be sectioned. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Joan of Arc and Julian of Norwich and all the rest of them would have been sectioned had they been living in <laughs> had they been living in contemporary society and probably pumped up with pharmaceutical drugs well, as well. The modern mentality. If you said you lived mm-hmm. in a church wall and you were having visions, you'd be yep. schizophrenic. You need to be rescued by the state. Yes, exactly. So, are you are you optimistic about the future? Well, look, fundamentally, if you're a Christian, the long term's looking good. <laughs> you know? They never, they never they, can't really. And the, the long term's looking good because we get a we get a second coming and a, and a rebirth of the world. But of course, we have to uh, have to work so that we get to be part of it. But I don't know. I mean, I think long before I became Christian or religious, really, I, I sort of tried. I think I moved to beyond optimism and pessimism, even when I was working at the Dark Mountain Project, because. You know, you can be optimistic as an activist, and then after a while, if you're being honest, you you have a big crash and you get very pessimistic. Um, because if you look at something like climate change, for example, it's very obvious that we can't turn that around with our own with our own efforts at this point. And so it's very, very easy to be pessimistic and cynical. But actually, all you can do is what you can do, and here you are. And if you believe that there's something very much bigger than us, there's a greater consciousness that we can't understand which is also one of the fundamental teachings of Christianity that they never tell you at school mm-hmm. is that we can never act, never actually know God. You can never know God. You might be able to know Christ. You might be able to experience God in the world, but you can't know fundamentally what God even is or what this whole thing means. Not in this life anyway. So, you know, we can't know that, but if there's something very much bigger than us that we're only a part of, then it changes the pattern of the story. You know, the world is not just a sort of material place that got here by accident and we have to try and fix it. Otherwise, we're in trouble. It's it's something that's there's a much bigger story playing out. So I don't know if that makes me optimistic exactly. Um, there's a lot of tribulation in Christianity. It's, pretty, it's really a faith that's designed for kind of crucifixion and martyrdom. You know, it's all about carrying your cross. So you're not supposed to be comfortable, actually, as a Christian. You're, you should expect to be persecuted and have a hard time. But but at the same time, you know, it's, um, yeah, if, if you think that you're being held uh, by God in a fundamental way, then it's, um, it's difficult to despair in, in the big sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
with with people such as yourself, such as John Michael Greer and, and, and uh, Dimitri Lolov, I always like to ask what advice you'd give for, um, I guess, I, I used to say the younger generations, but I mean, all, all people really need to be, I guess, I could say in relation to, uh, quote, healing the world, but also, I guess, in relation to taking up a more spiritual stance toward the world. world. Do, you ha- do you have any advice? Um, well... Keep your mind in hell and despair. Not is always good advice. I'd <laughs> say <laughs> probably start there. Um, but um, fundamentally, if you if you if you believe, if you intuit, if you experience that the, the as you as as I say as you say, there's something much bigger than us, and that this is a spiritual crisis. Then you need to go looking for it. You need to go and open yourself up. You need to get you need to get praying. But you need to go searching. I mean, this is what I've done, and what so many other people have done. Go and look for the truth and look for it in places you might not expect it um, and, and expect it to come to you and try and understand that this thing that we're all part of is very much bigger than us and that we're not in control of it and that that's okay. And that doesn't mean we can't do anything or that we haven't got a part to play, but it does mean that there's a bigger story that you're part of. And if you think that's true, Go out and find someone who can tell you that story properly and watch out for the false prophets because there's a lot of them around, literally trying to make profits from their prophecy. But, <laughs> you know, just go out and go searching, do the reading, go and talk to people who spiritually you respect. Go and, as I say, look in places that you might not expect. Go to a, go to a liturgy in a church and see what happens. You know, go and open yourself up to it because I do think that there has to be and there will be a big turning back towards a vision of the world that's called around, called around faith, actually, and called around the divine, because that's what the world is, I think, fundamentally. And we're going to resist that kicking and screaming all the way as a culture. We're going to fight that until until the day we die. But but you know, this this culture that we're living in is spiritually as well as ecologically unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the big lesson I've learned. Sustainability is not just about replacing the fuels in the ground or not using them you know it's about having a culture that's built for the human spirit that can actually nourish us and last and teach us the truth and we haven't got that so we're going to have to rebuild one but then looking at that from another angle that's quite an exciting project you know let's go out and rebuild rebuild a culture that actually reflects the divine reality of the universe that's um, that's a several centuries long project probably but we could you know we could get started give us something to do wouldn't it yeah, or we could go on a cruise. Or we could go on a cruise, yeah, I mean, which has never appealed to me, I have to say. Wow. <laughs> if I was going to choose an act of hedonism, that wouldn't be my first choice. <laughs> okay, okay. And you're currently writing at the Abbey of Misrule on Substack? Yes, I'm doing a, a couple of es- an essay every couple of weeks. I'm trying to, I'm trying to sort of, uh, well, I'm, blabbing on about the sort of stuff I've talked about here, really. I'm trying to explain what I think this culture is and, and where it's gone wrong and where we go next. So pretty much all of the stuff in the world, really. <laughs> but it's <laughs> but it says, again, as I said earlier, with all my writing, it's as much as anything, it's me trying to explain things to myself. And a lot of the writing I do like this is a, is, is a kind of tool to help me understand what's going on because when I put things down on paper, they suddenly seem more real than they did when they were just floating around in my head. So I'm hoping that I might come to some better understanding of all this by the by the end of the project. But it's it's been very interesting to do it. Yeah. 
Do you have Do you have any other books on the way, or is this your primary project at the moment? No, I don't have any other books on the way. I'm doing this at the moment. This is taking up all my energy. So, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. The other thing that's nice about becoming a Christian is I'm much more open to just doing what comes and having faith in it, rather than having to feel I have to have a career plan. Is there, is, is there any books you, since your conversion, you you feel you that might be coming along that you might like to write? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe people keep asking me to write a book about all of this, the, <laughs> the, the faith and the Christianity. But I can, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe one day, but I'm not going to rush into something like that. The, the, the nice thing about Christianity intellectually as well is that it's 2000 years old and there's, you know, it's, it's got 2000 years of intellectual and spiritual wisdom in it. So you can't just jump in with two feet and expect to write something valuable. <laughs> You've really got to know what you're talking about. So give me another 20 years and maybe I'll have some spiritual wisdom, but maybe not. Mm-hmm. And what what's the the web address for the Abbey of Misrule? Uh, it's paulkingsnorth.substack.com, I think. But you can also just Google me, and it'll pop up somewhere. Okay, okay. Um, is there anything you would like to add before we finish up? No, I think we've um, basically discussed all the great matters in the universe. Yeah, I'm not nice, sure that yeah. there's anything that we can <laughs> we can add to the pile. No, okay. Uh, yeah, Paul Kingsnorth. Thanks very much. Thank you.